Welcome to Deacon's Pod. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Paulus Affiliate Deacons, Deacon Drew and Deacon Tom. Hello, this is Deacon Drew. Hello, this is Deacon Tom. Just finished Pentecost, guys. How was your Pentecost? Did the Holy Spirit show up at your place? I showed up at mine. Oh, good. Yeah, I think he showed up at my place. We had a good liturgy. As we deacons sometimes say, I was a potted plant. I didn't preach or anything. I just basically read the gospel and sat back and watched the pastor do his thing, which was very nice. What about you guys? Excuse me. You were, let's clarify that for the listeners. You were a potted liturgical plant, (laughs) not just a potted plant. You were up there on the up there in the sanctuary standing at the altar so that's a lot of, a lot of blossoms on that's that four years of, of study for those of you who don't know to be a potted liturgical plant but I, and it's a fun place to be look we have a good seat right we're right we're up, yeah. right tom how was your pentecost very good again like drew i did not preach i just read the gospel or just enunciated the good news to the people and yeah the holy spirit sunday for Pentecost, but then on this Wednesday, we had a healing mass where a priest came, a healing priest from, from I think it's Nigeria. He's come back and forth. He used to come over to St. Francis Cabrini, but I guess things have changed over there. So we've had him over at our place, St. Joan of Arc. And it's just so interesting. And there were four priests and two deacons. And Father John, which he had done before, calls us as deacons and the participating clergy to participate in the healing. He set the people up to talk about God's healing power and the presence of that Holy Spirit, which is so fine that it was a couple of days after Pentecost to, to bring that in. And it was a wonderful liturgy, calling upon the work of the Holy Spirit, the healing power, and to, to bring what we see active in those acts of the apostles into our present day. And we had a good turnout, yeah. a couple hundred people. So it was very nice. Well, at least you did something for Pentecost. You no, know, yeah. most of the time, Pentecost to me, is it's the birthday of the church. It's what empowers us. It's God's presence in us. The Holy Spirit, who we all refer to as he, out of habit, people make a case it's, that would be proper to say she because the word spirit is feminine in all the languages from which we get our English word spirit. But that's another podcast. But anyway, I'm always surprised. It's like the culmination of the Easter season, which is the big season. What screwed up liturgically? When you think about it, we really... I wonder if we really don't get what's really important in the gospel sometimes. Christmas is the big thing. Anybody says Christmas isn't the big thing in the year, they don't know what they're talking about. That is the big enchilada. People, Christmas at Mass and all that stuff. But really, we all know theologically, Easter is the big enchilada. And then the culmination of Easter is Pentecost with a Holy Spirit, God coming to us, something that only happened to Moses and the prophets, and here it is, the democratization of God, and we just do a little Mass, and okay, we're done with that. Now on to ordinary time. I don't know if we really grasp what we're, if we can yet appreciate what we're in the middle of. So at least, Tom, you had that that beautiful gift from the culture of the church in Africa, where healing and, and all that, and done it by prayer and the community and everything is, that's something we don't even think about, but that's very central into a huge group of people in the church. And what I like about it especially is, like you say, the passing of the Feast of Pentecost. This is the mission of the church. Jesus passes over to the Holy Spirit to enlighten, guide, guard us. And it just, we don't see a lot of that. We we, We move from Pentecost to ordinary time. No, it's all extraordinary time to the 
extent that the Holy Spirit is alive and active, that challenges our faith. And I agree with you. We, we haven't figured it out what we have to do to subject our minds and hearts to what the Holy Spirit is. Yeah, I think so, we're very... So, go ahead. Go ahead I'm sorry. So I was just going to say, so you're both saying, while summer is a time of risk and relaxation in our lives, it's not necessarily a time to go to sleep in our faith. Correct. Even though we call it ordinary time. Why do we call it ordinary time? It comes from the, the Latin word ordino, meaning numbering. So we'll go back and we'll start to number. I think we pick up Next week at the 11th, Sunday of Ordinary Time. So is this a, a way of keeping track of, okay. the, of the liturgical year, correct? When, correct. When it's not Easter season or Christmas season, right. we fall into the counting of the weeks by numbers up to the number 34, the final day before we begin our Advent season. Yeah, you have your big seasons which celebrate big events, the birth of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, all that. So you have those, and those are like their own thing in the year. And then the rest of the year, what we call ordinary time, we're going through the teachings of Jesus. So it's hard, hardly ordinary. We are literally going step by step through the gospel. If you come every day and every week, you won't miss a chapter. It's not ordinary in the sense we usually, we ordinarily use that word of meaning. No <laughs> well, big deal here, just ordinary. No redundancy there. It's yeah. not ordinary in the way that I'm ordinary. I'm a very ordinary person. Right. Now, I, if I could, you guys mind if I change the subject? Go ahead, because I'm going to in the mouth, too. Don't surprise me, yeah. We are about to uh, to regale the listener with a great interview that we had earlier with Father Joe Ciccone, a Paulist father. And one of the topics that we discussed in that interview, and that they'll shortly hear, is about comfort zones and whether or not ministers ever leave their comfort zones and whether they should or they shouldn't, and what all that entails. And I just got to thinking when we were finished with the interview that here we are on a podcast, three of us, none of us, uh, I shouldn't say none of us, I think Dennis has some experience in this in the past, but I will say I have no experience. And Tom, I may be wrong, but I don't think you have any experience. Oh, I've got zero, in, less than zero. In basically I think it's a negative broadcasting radio podcast experience. I mean, this is not what I was trained to do. Have we left, and I ask the question for each and every one of us, have we left our comfort zones in doing a podcast? Dennis, since I think maybe you did it a I didn't, you didn't have a podcast, but did no. you do radio in college? I did in college. If we fooled around. I was like, uh, call the hit line and that kind of stuff and playing the latest and the greatest. And it was just silly. I just wanted to try it and uh, it was fun. But I really, this kind of thing, I have no more experience than any of you. But I, it's always, I think if someone's recording you and you're opening yourself up to all these people and you get nasty grams and people on Twitter saying vile things who I don't even think listen to the thing. They just judge you by your face or whatever that they happen to see and all this. But well, I uh, hope not. Yeah, that's why I keep saying quit putting those pictures up. Why not? And we have faces and for radio. We're going to talk, have to talk <laughs> to management about that. Yeah, yeah, no, really, that's not helping the effort. But, yeah, no, I, it's, it, I think you've got to be vulnerable to do this. You're, you're, it's not my comfort zone, and I'm an egomaniac, just like Drew is. And uh, Tom, I don't know, is an egomaniac. He's a knucklehead. Tom's a knucklehead. Don't get me wrong. But he's not a, I think you know, with Tom, that's the, the box I check. With Tom, the emphasis is on maniac. That's right. That's yeah, right. Drew. I'm from, I'm from Connecticut. Yeah, Drew, Drew, and, Drew and I are like, listen, I'll give you two hours to take that spotlight off of me, and I'm not kidding. You've got two <laughs> really? hours, and you need to stop it. Yeah, but but. but you're right, Dennis. I'm absolutely confessed to being an egomaniac, but it's a little disconcerting when you're getting recorded and then it goes out and it's done. 
And, and you, we don't get the chance to say, that's not exactly what I meant. Then, Hold on. Tell them what, how we do this. What, what happens? So we do this recording like we're doing now. We send it out to Chicago to David, to our editor, the famous Professor David Dalt. To know him is to love him. We send it to him, and he does. What does he send us? He sends us back. The transcript, he, I think he rough cuts edit, rough cut edits. That may not be the right way to say it, but sent us the transcript back. And then if there's anything that we think really needs to come out, then we take it out. And then, but we basically live with what we've done. It's a right, rare but time. we wait for that. My point is we wait for that transcript. <laughs> We're like, geez, did I say that the right way? Oh my God, someone's good. Because people here, we all know as preachers, People say, that was wonderful, Deacon, when you said blah, blah, blah. And you're like, dude, I got yeah. the paper in my hand. I just walked off the altar. <laughs> I never said that. But they heard it. So, uh, so Drew, you said there's a theological theme here when you said we live with what we've done. So, and you know so, how deep that yeah, is? So That's true. a profound statement. I happen to <laughs> have uh, drawn the assignment to preach the Sunday after 9-11. And I'm not going to take you through a long story on this. I would just say that it was very difficult. I have all these years later— I have no idea how I did other than that I poured my heart out. And then after it was over, one of the parishioners came up and said, Deacon, I agree with you completely. And I'm first, I'm gratified. And then he says, we should hunt those people down and kill each and every one of them. Kill them. <laughs> kill their dogs, too. Yeah. <laughs> no matter how I might have felt, I God you, is love. I promise you, I did not say that. From the I have no doubt. I have no doubt. There's the walk away. That's what I he heard, no though. And oh, so yeah. here we are doing this on a Bi-weekly no. basis, and I will say to you, two of you, and I think it's no surprise, I feel a little bit out of my comfort zone. How about me? I spent 40 years dealing with numbers. They never talked back to me. They didn't have to guess. <laughs> two or two is four, and unless you have to make it equal five under adverse conditions, yeah. but which we can do. Well, the truth is but, that, uh, that Drew and I are extroverts, but we are not egomaniacs or narcissists or whatever. We do see faults and say, oh, my God, why am I doing this? But hopefully, a culpa. hopefully it helps someone. <laughs> Tom and I were talking, Drew, and we were looking at the analytics. And we got people listening to this thing all around the world. Yep. It is like, really? Mm -hmm. If I'm talking at my parish and we can get 20 people to come and hear me, yeah. I'm bragging to my mm -hmm. wife when I get home. And I'm like, there's people in Iceland right now listening yeah. to us. Yeah. And I want to shout out to Iceland. We got to start recognizing these people. We got to take those, because we don't know who you are. We just know this nine listeners in Iceland or whatever it was. I can't remember. Maybe Tom does. We know that there are people in, the, in Brazil or wherever, but there was a handful in Iceland. Hey, if you're in Iceland, God bless you. You made my day when I heard that yeah, we really? had people listening in Iceland. So we appreciate you and feel free to write to us there at that email address for anything that, that we could put at the end of the show. But shout out to Iceland. Yes, indeed. But Many I places. would say that I would repeat that message to anybody who's listening. It's always good to hear from our listeners, especially if you have some, I'm going to say, constructive criticism. But if you have any kind of criticism at all, look, that's what the website's there for. We, can, we always learn. We always try to do better. We're pouring our hearts out here, and all we want to do is bring the Holy Spirit, bring this back to Pentecost, bring the Holy Spirit into your lives and enrich our own lives by sharing that Holy Spirit amongst the three of us and who are, and Mark Aislinn comes in and sits with us sometimes. So all we're trying to do is have the love of God be present in our lives. And if you think we're doing a good job, please share it. If you don't think we're doing a bad job, tell us before you tell everybody else, and we'll try to change. <laughs> Fair? 
That's a good statement. And again, I think it's appropriate to to look and to remember that Isaac Hecker was a big spirit-filled person, and his life was committed to the Holy Spirit, listening to the Holy Spirit. And it got him through these difficult challenges that he faced. And the challenge we face, face, I think, all the time is that interior change that we have to make to make our hearts and minds more like Christ to become. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And boy, we talk about challenges. It means letting God go of this vile and this hatred and all the things that we're seeing on when we post this on Twitter and when we go on and see some of the stuff that's on there. Like, it can't be coming from a heart that's with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You can't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and then be vile with your speech and actions. And that's what we see. You know? Yeah. So let's, well, that's a great thing, Tom. What you're saying is absolutely correct. And with that, perhaps we should move on to this wonderful interview that we were able to get from Father Joe Ciccone. Very enlightening, a man of in transition because of medical reasons. It's, there's a lot we can learn from, from this interview with Father Joe of being open to grace and being in that in-between place where you were doing one thing and now, because of, in his case, health reasons, you've got to be open to what comes next. Let's back to Tom's thing about listening to the Holy Spirit, because it's going to happen to us all in one way or another. Yep. It's going to happen to us all. We are not driving this bus. And those of us that think we are, you're delusional. We were so blessed to have this conversation. He truly is a holy man. Well, we are pleased to welcome today Father Joe Ciccone, a Paulist father who was ordained on May 13th, 1989. So I guess he just celebrated an anniversary and we'll be celebrating a big one pretty soon, I suppose, if they're not all big. I like <laughs> All my anniversaries are big. But anyway, welcome to our podcast, Father Joe. I'm so glad to be here with you all. So, Father Joe, rather than giving our listeners a big, long, drawn-out, boring explanation of who you are, I've already set the stage. You're a Paulist priest. You were ordained in 1989. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to that? Because it sounds like to me you had a prior life, If when I, when I look back at your biography. That yeah, I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I grew up in a redemptorist parish, interestingly enough. Even though I'm from New York City, I had never heard of the Paulist Fathers, other than a branch of the Paulist Press. I think it was called Newman Press back in the day. But it was through a Dominican sister friend of mine that I even heard about the Paulist Fathers and began to look into them when I started thinking about ministry in the church. Unlike many other colleagues who shared their own stories, I never really left the church. I never really walked away from God. I had been involved as a young person with the Crescio movement, other small groups, the charismatic renewal, and even as a young man going to art school, because I went to Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. I studied art and design, not fine arts, communication design. And even in that atheistic environment and during my college art days, and then later on as a junior art director on Madison Avenue for Dancer Fitzgerald Sample, I still stay connected to the church. Even people I worked with thought I was weird, but I had friends who were involved in church and they encouraged me. And I felt that my faith gave me hope. So even when all the things that I did not like about the church, even all the things that I felt was were wrong, I connected myself to innovative places and people who were connected, and they gave me energy, and 
finding more purpose by living my Christian life. An interesting move of the Holy Spirit, I think, was how a colleague in the business end of advertising, a man who's still a good friend of mine, how he inspired me to pray more about my own future, not by saying anything, but just by what he did, because he announced, this is the later 70s or early 80s, that he was leaving the advertising business and going to Yale Divinity School to study to be an Episcopal priest in the Episcopal Diocese of Connecticut. And that made me pause. And I went down to his office and I said, how are you doing this? What does your wife think? And he said, oh, this has been in my mind for many years. So they moved their kids, their family to New Haven, Connecticut. And we continued to stay in touch then for many years. I felt that if he could make such a huge change in his own life with a wife and three kids, that I probably can consider how God was moving me. I began to pray more seriously that I would find a greater purpose in my life. And then this Dominican sister friend told me about the Paulus fathers. I made contact with them. And then the rest is history. When was that? About when did that happen? How far, how far... Uh, it was around 1981 or 82. And how far were you into your other career? Your ma- I was in ma- advertising for about seven years. Okay. I left in 19... 19- I asked my boss to fire <laughs> and I'm still in touch with him. He's a non-practicing Jew. He's elderly now, but I just wanted to have an assurance. I didn't know where it was all going to go. And I was exploring some other religious communities as well. A group of Franciscans, the Atonement Friars, interestingly, who had their origin, the American Episcopal Church. And But the, when I read about the Paulists, that just totally grabbed me. And an interesting connection was when I went to go on a kind of retreat with the Atonement Friars up in Graymore, New York, they gave me the book on their founder. And their founder, Father Paul Watson, his father was an Episcopal priest as well. And he was also a classmate of Father Clarence Walworth, one of the founders of the Paul's Fathers. They went to General Theological Seminary in Manhattan together. And... They stayed in touch, and Father Paul Watson's father, whose name I can't remember, went to hear his classmate preach in Baltimore, I believe, at a <laughs> Catholic church. And he came back and said to his son, what we need in the Episcopal church is a preaching order like the Paulist fathers. That wow. sealed the deal right. for me. Okay. I felt oh. it was the Spirit speaking to me. You mentioned a few minutes ago that I think you said you touched or uh, part of or were had some experience of the charismatic movement when you were younger. Yeah, it was like I think I was out of college. It was at the parish I was still going to the parish I grew up in. They were lovely people. Eventually, though, I just felt I saw a lot of kind of weirdness and things that didn't sit well with me. What it did do for me, the positive part, is it put me in touch with that reliance on the Holy Spirit working in one's life, which was important for Father Hecker. And it, it brought both the history of the Spirit working in the church to the forefront, as well as working in the modern day, that people didn't have to have a lot of formal education or theology, but they could rely on the Spirit in their lives. And I saw wonderful people being excited. I'd go to prayer meetings and all that. 
Right. And I think for our listeners' benefit, in the very beginning of your story, you said that you grew up in a redemptorist parish, I think. And for our listeners, the importance of that is that Father Isaac Hecker was originally a redemptorist priest, along with the other founders of the Paulus Fathers. That's correct. And just coincidentally, maybe three years ago, I think that was definitely pre-pandemic, Cardinal Tobin, who was a redemptorist priest, came over and ordained a few of the Paulist priests at St. Paul the Apostle Church. So there's still, even though they left, we still have a good, we, I say we because we're Paulist deacon affiliates, we still have a good relationship with the redemptorist. They were also preachers too, weren't they? Father Very Father? much. Yeah. Although sadly, when I was a young man and had high expectations, the parish to me felt like it was a bunch of people, seniors, and there was no one I could relate to as a young man. I even sat down and met with the pastor and said, I just want to let you know, I'm moving on from here. I, was, I joined a new parish that was established in Brooklyn, New York, where there was a younger contingency. They were, had an experimental team ministry going on. And some of those people are still friends of mine. Again, the Dominican sisters I had met. But I was very polite when I said, the preaching isn't speaking to me. One of the, uh, the big issues for me at that point in my life was that I felt the church was out of touch where people were living their lives. In many ways, I still think the church is out of touch, not paying attention to where the younger generation is, and that's why so many of them are just walking away. But I've come to really love the Redemptorists and really appreciate their history of preaching and being with the people. Now I understand why Father Hecker was drawn there. Sure. Uh, so... Let's talk about, I, usually toward the end of our episodes, our sessions with guests, we ask them a question, and we thought we would ask you the question up front maybe a little bit, and talk about this. Our podcast is hopefully de- designed to reach people who are on the margins, and I know, I think we have differing opinions about who's listening to our podcast. We have some stats, but we think the people who listen to it at least talk to other people who may be on the margins. That's who we're looking for. So our question is, imagine that you encounter someone who is standing in the metaphorical door of the church. They may be going out, they may be angry, or somebody has made them upset and they need to leave. They're not identifying with the church as we stand today. Or they're coming in, they can't make up their mind, they can't decide. What would you offer that person, whether they're coming out or going in? Well, I think, first of all, you've got to listen. You've got to understand where people are coming from. And I think that's what the Paulist fathers really try to do. That's why I joined them. What's the context? People show up at church rarely, maybe because of a family event, a wedding, maybe a funeral, or maybe because someone in their family is being baptized, a niece, a nephew, a relative's child. Whatever the context is, if you even have access to start a conversation, the first thing I need to say is, oh, it's so nice to meet you. It's great that you're here. Sometimes people will admit, I've been away from church forever, or I don't buy any of this anymore. And I go, "Eh, okay, I understand. I know a lot of people like that, even friends of mine. So it's always important to meet them where they're at. And if you're welcoming Perhaps as the spirit moves, they may start to feel free to ask questions, okay? Of course, priests and deacons in their preaching need to always be aware of this. 
You don't know who you're talking to. And especially now with live streaming, you have no idea who's tuning in and what effect you might have. So your choice of words, your attitude, your body language, it all speaks. That's the advertising guy in me. So always pay attention to that. And if you are welcoming and have this awareness and sensitivity, then maybe there would be a door open for people to ask more questions because people are always searching. They're searching for something. And that's what bring the, brings them to Buddhism. I've had a lot of friends who even have become non-denominational evangelical Christians. I think probably because there's a more intensive experience a faith community and that kind of support that people basically need. I think that's the key to tell people if you're in person with them, it's nice to have you here. Then hopefully it might go to another level. But stopping people on the street, like a lot of other religious groups do, I don't think that necessarily goes very far. It's hard. It's really difficult. and becomes right. more and more difficult. Right. You remind me of a time we... This was at least 25, 30 years ago. But we had friends who she had grown up Catholic and really drifted away from the church because he wasn't Catholic. He was Protestant. But they had their kids and their boy in a Catholic school with our children. And that's how we became friends. And we're talking one night and they were incensed that the pastor in their parish, which was not their parish, but in the parish that geographically they would have been living in, rang the doorbell. And so, and said, hi, I know that you've come to church because we, uh, somehow he had their name. He says, I just wanted to talk. Would you like to, uh, can, you know, you want to have, spend a few minutes? And they felt like they really annoyed them. And they came to me and they were talk, complaining to me about it. And I said, I think he was just trying to be friendly, but okay, I get it. Which is the opposite of what my pastor, two pastors ago used to do when the Jehovah Witnesses would come and knock on his door. He would say, come on in. And he'd bring them in. They were knocking on a rectory door, quite frankly. They knew what they were getting into. And he would invite them in and just spend a lot of time talking to them. Conversation can never be bad unless you're really in a hurry to go someplace, right? <laughs> yeah, but you have to give people the freedom to enter into the conversation. It is part of evangelical Protestantism, uh, certainly maybe Pentecostals, Baptists, and those kind of groups where that is part of their tradition. Once someone shows up at the church, they want your address, they want your name, and they want to then make the next step to invite you closer in. But the way people live their lives in the 21st century, we're accosted by so many things, even online, that sometimes for certain personalities, that's too much. So again, you have to pay attention. You have to intuit and feel what's going on. Absolutely. If I can just jump in a second, one of the things I've often noticed, and when I was working as a prison chaplain, I noticed it a lot because it was easy to see. A lot of people like the anonymity that the Catholic Church provides. I want to sit in the back pew. I don't want to come up front. I don't want you sweating me. You know what I mean? There is for For people like us that are preachers and evangelizers, we tend to think of that as, well, that's bad. We got to be more, and people got to be engaged and this and that. But for them, it's not a bug. It's a feature. It's, a, oh, okay. I don't, I don't want the pressure. I've been to the other places 
where they're asking you to testify or stand up or they're always, you got to come to church four nights a week and you got, so it's interesting that given that we're talking about everybody, it's pretty hard to find an approach that works for everybody, no matter what you do. I also think that currently, and I don't propose to have the right stats, I've been out of very active ministry for a few years now due to health issues. But I have lots of questions, even asking my niece or my nephews something about, help me understand this, about how you think. Sometimes there isn't even an opportunity to do that. But I think it changes. I think it changes not only every five years, I think it changes by the year or the months, what's going on with people. And that makes it all the more challenging. Maybe patience is what we need to exercise more than anything. Right. Patience. And I would just, in what Father's response to your earlier question, Drew, I would, I would point out, and this is, I think this is typical Paulist, which is, I think, a very strong <laughs> approach is when he's talking about listening and knowing where they're coming from. But there's an assumption behind that of your conversion, your whatever you're going to do one way or the other is between you and the Holy Spirit. Now, my job is not to screw that up. That's the first thing, not to be an obstacle right, with my body language or my attitude or whatever. And then if I can facilitate, that's a great thing for me to do. But I don't convert you. I'm not going to talk you into the church or anything like that. Father Hecker always had that tremendous respect for the influence of the Holy Spirit when he was, we have some letters of his that he, to his people he was doing spiritual direction with. And they were very frustrated. They were like, tell me what to do. And he says, no, you listen to the Holy Spirit. I'm not stepping on the Holy Spirit's toes. I can." He was very aware of his potential to, to put himself in there or his agenda or his ideas and somehow block the Holy Spirit working in that person's life. So I think that I just want to point out that underneath that nice little answer Father Joe gave, there's a whole approach, a whole theological understanding, which is very, very much supported by the Catholic tradition. All that being said, and I agree, having been in campus ministry up until 2018, I have also noticed that among a certain group, whether they were raised Catholic or not, there are certain young, younger people who are searching for certain kinds of truths and stability in their lives and young Catholic evangelists following in a kind of a modality, maybe learned through the Protestant churches, approach those people and question them and try to propose the truth of Catholic Christianity that they may be missing. And because they're very in a needy situation, they pay attention. And so then they are given a lot of the truths of the Catholic faith and why we practice as we do, while we have all the disciplines and liturgical practices and rituals, et cetera. But that's a particular demographic and they're open to that. And then they want a very intense Catholic Christianity that for all those of us who are a bit older, looks like years ago with a strong, rigorous practicing of the faith, intense 
moral expectations, et cetera, et cetera. That works for some people. But there's still a whole other group out there who are not in the church, who are not tuning in to religious services that we may meet in a bar or at a restaurant or the theater or whatever. How do we present ourselves if questions about our faith that they might see things in a different way? Yeah, one size does not fit all. And it doesn't matter what your approach is or what I like or what you like. There is no the answer. Even in the old church, there was always, you had this Jansenistic, real strict morality, especially sexual morality, and that was the be-all and end-all and fear-based, and you had all of that stuff. But you also had the Paulus. You had the bell rings. You just said a word that you may want to explain to our listeners, Jansenist. I tried to do that, the strict morality, purity, focus on that. It's similar to what father was just talking about. But I just want to point out that even in the old days, when that approach was quite pervasive, and we all, everybody here remembers it, you still had other approaches and other approaches were necessary. That didn't sell, that didn't play in Peoria for everybody then. There is no one size fits all. And so we're always going to have it, which is why you have to be tolerant of other approaches and say, well, for some people, that's what does it. And for other people, it's no thank you, you know? So You need this variety of approach, I think, is the only way you can do it, because people are going to do with whatever you say based on their personality and experience. So, Now, if we could, Father, let's continue a little bit about uh, along with your journey. I don't want to necessarily call it a spiritual journey. When you became a Paulist, where were you assigned, and what kind of work did you do? Well, as a student, I got summer assignments, so I got to— get a a bit of the flavors going on in the Paulist world. My very first permanent assignment, which was also my internship year, we did it a little different than the deacon year was your also your internship year. And being a deacon has allowed you to lead certain sacramental services to do baptisms and weddings. Mm -hmm. So it added dimension to that learning curve. And I was assigned as a New Yorker to Clemson, South Carolina. (laughs) And my classmates said, let's see how long this one lasts. (laughs) Because talking about, we're talking about a major cultural shift. Yes. Being planted into Baptist lands. And the Paulists had been in Clemson, South Carolina since 1930. And I can't even imagine what it was like back then. Some Paulists were treated very rudely because they were Catholic. We don't serve your kind, uh, especially a, a priest with the collar on. But going there was one of the greatest experiences of my life. I still have friends there. We are no longer there. We left in 2006 and the diocese took over for a while. And now the OFM, the Franciscans, I think from the Sacred Heart province are ministering there and doing a great job. They just built a new church even. But it was a great experience. And I even remember a woman who was Baptist who came to our RCIA inquiry class. Not that she wanted to become a Catholic, but she had been hearing horrible things in her circle of work friends at a factory. And I said, what brought you here? That's really brave of you. And she said, well, I wanted to hear it right from the horse's mouth. I didn't want to hear all these rumors. 
I wanted to know what the Catholics believe. And I went to her Baptist church one day as a priest. And uh, she was so happy about that, introduced me to the pastor. So there's ecumenism going on right there. Grassroots, person to person. I also did, we were involved with campus ministry to the University of Clemson, South Carolina. That's why the Paulists, I think, went there. And it was just a great experience. Was very involved with a ecumenical ministers group that also included two Jewish people who became very good friends of mine. They were not rabbis or anything. He was a professor at the university. She worked in social service in the closest large town. She's now deceased. But I was even invited to their home on a Sunday. I was able to get out of mass and address their Hillel group. So there was these great experiences to have in-person and grassroots experience with people of different faith groups. There were no Muslims back then, but certain other Christians. And I became friends with a Baptist minister, got to meet the Lutheran pastors, the Episcopal priests, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a great Paulist experience. And we also not only took care of this main church of St. Andrews in Clemson, but we were like circuit riders, to borrow from the Protestant term. We'd get in a car to go and do Saturday evening anticipatory mass in one small town, throw the collection in the trunk, drive about seven or so miles to the other small town and did the next Saturday evening mass, put the collection in the trunk and then drove back to Clemson and maybe did a mass the next day, even at St. Andrews. So it was a wonderful experience. Having grown up in the South, a deep South, I grew up in South Georgia, and there was one small Catholic church in my town, and the only people who went to that church were the African-Americans who lived in town. It was a mission church, and because all of the white people were either Baptist or Methodist. And frankly, at that time, and maybe it's because I was just totally ignorant, I could not tell the difference in the theology of the Baptist and the Methodist. Or It wasn't like the Methodism, I don't think, of Father Hecker's time back in the mid-19th century. But anyway, where did you, what happened next to you? Did, uh, where were you assigned after you came back out of the South? Well, after Clemson, South Carolina, I went to more campus ministry in Boulder, Colorado. We are also no longer there. That also was a great experience. I was there seven years. At the age of 40, I learned to ski, met wonderful people, and I'm still in touch with many of them. They've become good friends, including many of the students I knew both at Clemson and in Boulder, Colorado. After seven years there, I went to Chicago here, Chicago, where I'm currently living for the summer. And I lived at our other place, which no longer exists, was raised to the ground at the south end of the loop. And I had commuted to the Catholic Theological Union to study liturgy and what have you. It was a great learning experience. And after that, I then moved, was assigned to Boston, Massachusetts, our Catholic Information Center in downtown Boston. I was only there a few years, and then I was offered to become a pastor in Knoxville, Tennessee. So I was back in the Southeast. I was in downtown Knoxville. I think it was five years. It was a great experience. East Tennessee is a very different cultural experience 
than South Carolina or even South Georgia, but it was great. There were a lot of Catholics who traced their history back to the late 1800s because the parish was founded in 1858. It's why it was named the Immaculate Conception because the dogma had just been proclaimed. From there, I went to the St. Thomas More Newman Center that was across the street from the Ohio State University. Sadly, we are also no longer there. The bishop wanted to have his own people there at that ministry. But it also was a great experience. After that, then I went to New York City to become the pastor of our mother church. But sadly, within less than five months, I was diagnosed with lymphoma of my hip. So what do you think about small groups, prayer groups, or at-home Bible studies right now? Do you... And what did you think about them at Ohio State? Do they work? I do think they work. I think they help people and they make them feel connected. I think small faith communities within even a parish or an ecclesial setting can really be helpful. Even the Reformed and Protestant churches know about this. There are home Bible study groups. I think they're important. I really do. All right, so I got two questions here at this point in the timeline. First of all, every place you went to was a great experience except Boston. Is that a Yankee Red Sox problem, or what, what are we talking about here, Father? <laughs> no. Because the Paula Center in Boston is home base for me, so. Oh, you know, yeah, no, I had a great near experience and dear. in Boston. I'm still friends with those people, too. <laughs> those uh, Red I did Sox have fans? A, I do have a story. My sister and my brother-in-law, my brother-in-law is from Kenosha, Wisconsin, they came with the kids who were young, my nephews. They're now young men, one's getting married. And they came to Boston. And I told them, do not wear any Yankee paraphernalia <laughs> or shirts. Right. I made now, that mistake in Cape Cod once, and I really did it inadvertently. I'm walking around Provincetown with my wife and some friends, and several young men really said something really nasty to me as they passed me. And I looked, turned to my wife and I said, what was that all about? And she looked at me and she looked up at my, and she said, you're wearing a Yankee hat. Yep. Why don't you take it off? A hundred years <laughs> of losing will make you bitter. Take it from me. <laughs> and I said, um, I didn't even think about it. I, def, I immediately took it off and stuck it in her purse. So, so This I, is about sensitivity to the local culture. Correct. Exactly. <laughs> it, totally. And I totally get it. I can't believe I didn't even think of it. So let me tell you my other story in this timeline. When you became pastor of St. Paul's before you got sick, that's where I met you. I was standing in the hallway, I believe it was by the refectory with my wife. We'd come out, I think, from dinner, and I believe we were there for the promises of these two knuckleheads that are talking to us. So the first Paul, you and Tom were in the same We're in the group. same class, and we yes. had our promises yeah. in New York City. Okay, so I'm standing there with Debbie. She's just come, my wife, my lovely bride. She, we've just come out of the, the refectory. And uh, this crazy guy comes around the corner at 90 miles an hour like he was shot from a gun. I don't know who this guy is. And I look at him, and of course, this, the crazy guy is you, Father Joe. And I'm looking at this guy, and you're in sweats or something, and you are just like going. you got a purpose in life. And all of a sudden, I do recognize you because I had seen the announcement or whatever. I said to my wife, oh, Debbie, this is the new pastor here. And you said, hi. And you stopped. You were very gracious. You were delightful and talked to us for a minute and everything. And and then you excused yourself saying, yeah, I'm supposed to be running this place. You think I can get a towel? 
and <laughs> off you went. And I turned to my wife, just so you know, and she, we were both laughing. And I turned to her and I said, this is why I love the Paulus. <laughs> Did you see that? That was it. That was pure Paul. That was a Paulus moment right there. It's no pretense. No one's posing for holy cards. Sense of humor, humility, fun. So that was when I met you, Father Joe. And pretty real. <laughs> Just to tag on that story, when we for, I first got involved with the Paulus Fathers, and, and my wife was getting, coming over with me to New York and met a few people, she basically said the same thing. She goes, and she used to tell all our friends, one of the reasons I like the Paulus Fathers is that they're always happy. You know, they're always smiling. They're always welcoming. They're not grumpy. They're not, I'm, whatever it is, it's great. They're so, not like us. Exactly. Thank you. Grumpy old man. <laughs> so, Father Joe, then, but with all that lighthearted stuff, I'm sorry to bring this up, but you mentioned you you found out you had cancer. So, all right, you're a priest. You've been ministering to other people your entire life after you were in on Madison Avenue. <laughs> and even probably while you're on Madison Avenue, you were somewhat of a minister, my guess is. How, how do you deal with that? What happens? Can you share that with us? It's- yeah, sure. First of all, it took a good four months to know what was going on. I couldn't lift my right leg when I was seated. And I was at the theater with Father Frank Desiderio. I, it was, I think, November, early November of 2018. And I'm going, I've got to go see a doctor. I can't lift my leg. I thought maybe I pulled something at the gym. So I finally got talked to my primary care guy. He referred me to someone else like in sports medicine. I could not get an appointment with that guy over a month. I tried every week, but it got worse and worse. I was in more and more pain. By mid-December, I was just a mess. And I eventually saw the guy at the end of December. They did an MRI and they had a speculation that there was either multiple myeloma, lymphoma, some other kind of bone cancer. They were afraid of me fracturing my hip. Got through Christmas somehow on crutches because they were afraid of me fracturing my hip and got into the next year. And it took to the end of January before I had a formal and proper diagnosis. The first diagnosis the oncologist told me it was the best kind of lymphoma to have. And then after a PET scan, he said, no, this is much more aggressive. But they never did radiation. They only did chemotherapy for four months. I trust in God. I feel I have a relationship with Jesus. And I said, okay, let's do this. And I began chemotherapy. I never really was fearful of dying for some reason. I don't know why. I just did what I had to do. Now, there were certain days after chemo infusions that I was a mess, mostly because of the other drugs to counter maybe certain effects. When I finished the chemotherapy, I began having symptoms and that are with me to this day. But my oncologist then wanted me to begin two years of post-chemo therapy every two months. And I began that. But there were many days when I was just really so tired, hit with a wall of tiredness. It's something that's inexplainable. Only when you talk to other people who've gone through chemotherapy. So this 
having this experience certainly helps me have a better understanding and relationship to people who are dealing with cancer or undergoing chemotherapy. I completed that chemotherapy after going to Rome because I went to Rome, Italy, because the president of the Father Eric Andrews said, maybe you need a change of environment. It could be an opportunity for you. Why I said yes to that, to this day, I never know. Friends, other people said to me, how could you go into a foreign environment, not even speaking Italian, in the midst of COVID, by the way? It was, was still heavy COVID environment. Filled out all the paperwork, went, jumped through all the hoops. And then I was in quarantine for two weeks in Rome. And I worked out of my bedroom. And it was a very strange experience. But I constantly trusted God through this. Yet at the end, after a year and a half or a year and, I don't know, seven months, I said I really had to come back to the States to continue to deal with this intense tiredness. I also got COVID while in Rome. And then again, when I came back to the States in June of 2022. But through that whole experience, what, it, what else would I do other than you pray? Prayer is about a relationship with God. And so I have conversations. Come on, what are we doing here? So I, okay, I'm cancer free. Thank you, Jesus. How am I supposed to live my life? How am I supposed to inform my religious community what I can do and what I can't do. And I'm still in that modality, to be quite honest and frank. I push myself to do what I can. And then every once in a while, I just go, I have to lie down on a bed. I can't even sleep. I just have to, I can't do any more physically or mentally. So that's, it's been a great challenge. But I constantly think of so many people that I know, including colleagues, Paula's fathers, who have either gone through a variety of cancers themselves or have had a return of their cancer. Women who had breast cancer and then the years later, they're finding there's a metastasization of the cancer. It's all scary stuff. And there are no guarantees even with all modern science. So you rely on your faith. It sounded like you had conversations with Jesus where you might have been somewhat Annoyed, if not angry, is it okay to get angry with God? Oh, asking, yes, it is. I'm asking for our listeners. And maybe this is also a cultural thing. I was raised Italian-American. My paternal grandparents were both from Italy, although I think they married in the United States. My mother's parents, that grandfather came from an island in the Bay of Naples, but his wife, my grandmother, was American. And uh, they also were married in the United States. But all of them, I don't know, you just get this from the culture, that it's fine to get angry with God. There was a story that Father Tom Stransky used to tell about his experience when he was involved with the Second Vatican Council. And he went to Naples, which is my heritage, to go to the cathedral there where the the relics of San Gennaro, St. Januarius, are. And I've been there now. And on the day of his memorialization, they bring out the vial of his blood that's supposed to liquefy, okay? And if it doesn't, as he said from his experience, the people start cursing in the church, (laughs) cursing at the saint. It's this emotional kind of religion. And I think I just kind of learned that 
by absorbing it, that's so it's okay to be angry with God. It's part of the relationship. You get angry with friends. You get angry with your spouse. But you can keep the conversation going and you work it out. Uh, and, yeah, and that's let, a real Mediterranean thing. That I think it people is. People don't have that problem. The Northern Europeans, which would be Casey and me for sure, that <laughs> Irish tradition, you don't. Heck, you don't talk back to father or sister. No, no you're going to talk right. back say to the God. Rosary, you whip out I, the beads. <laughs> and if I may, again, Father Joe, forgive me for asking, but was your faith ever shaken by your disease? I think if it was shaken, it happened during the post-chemo therapies where I had to go to a private hospital in Rome. And I couldn't speak Italian. That was frustrating. I had to work through an Ita American doctor we knew there. We, you can't function. I don't know if it's a guy thing or whatever. We lie so much our self-importance by what we do. Or is it just simply that when you cannot function well, it's difficult to do the simple things in life? And that really made me begin to question God to say, Lord, what are we doing here? Why didn't you take me out? I would not have done chemotherapy. That would have been silly. So I have my life, but it's intensely compromised. And that is a major adjustment. Maybe it's a lesson in humility. It certainly is. Yeah. Yeah. When it reminds me as you're talking, I'm thinking of Father Hecker's leukemia. Towards the end of his life, he went from being the steam priest, which, of course, was the big new mode of energy, the Fulton steamboat at the time and all this stuff. And he went from being the, the steam priest, the go-getter, the man with the ideas, the plan, the energy, to being a sick man. But he wrote and, I think, grew spiritually in his later writings and stuff. I think they're a product of that downtime, that that enforced inactivity, where he had to confront a lot of things that maybe he was too busy to confront. But it's it can be a real blessing. It's not a fun blessing, but it's a real blessing. Apparently, that's what I was thinking as you were talking. It sounds like what the founder went through. That experience, that saying, "Let go and let God." I think that really has become very much in front of me every day. What else can you do when you realize that you are no longer free to do certain things? You also become aware that you are now free, that you don't have to prove yourself as you did when you were younger. Maybe that's also part of the aging process. You realize all the silly things that you felt you had to do to prove your worth, whether in a company or among colleagues or with friends. And the stupid things that you do to show that you could be part of them or, or that you have the ability to do certain things, whether it's in sports or in academics, you, you reach a certain point, especially when you don't have the steam to say, I just don't have it anymore and I don't have to prove anything anymore. Right. Well, it's tough to enter that world of suffering. We don't go voluntarily. And uh, as much as we can know that the cross calls us to accept it, the suffering. Absolutely. It's still the hardest one to do. And I think that's why we have so many drugs and painkillers and everything. We Absolutely. avoid suffering at all yes. costs. And when you go through a deep experience as you do and people who suffer all those diseases, it brings you to a point of confrontation. And if you have faith, you've got something to work with. But if you don't, 
I don't know where your mind takes you during those challenging moments. We have to answer the mystery of suffering through our own human nature to make decisions. I think, though, too, it would also help me. I think it helped me. There are certain people in our polished either parishes who I had gotten to see. I went to preach a polished appeal, actually in Ohio. And afterward, people knew I had been through the cancer and chemo. And I would say to them how I'm struggling. And they would, there was at least five people who said to me, God isn't finished with you yet. That scared me. It almost felt like a prophecy. God Mm -hmm. is not finished with you yet. So I say that so often the church, the people of God, many to whom we minister, can often offer us a prophetic word to keep us moving, to keep us going, to keep us centered in our faith. Very true. Again, that comes into that theme of we go to minister to people, but find ourselves ministered to more often and when we need it also. Correct. So what are your comfort zones for ministry? When have you been out of your comfort zone? Now, you just took us through your illness, and I'm, I, and I'm not trying to be stupid about this, or but I'm talking about just ministry now and not the fact that you've been sick. Were there any parts, for instance, I'll give you an example for me. I'm out of my comfort zone when I have to go to the hospital to minister. Now, I don't mind talking to someone who's ill or sick if it's on my terms, but going into a hospital with the doctors and the nurses and the machines, I'm out of my comfort zone. So, Father, I'm asking you, did you have any such issues? Do you have any such issues as you go through your priesthood? Yes, but they're in the past, which is almost miraculous. I was always very unsure of myself, even as a kid. I felt I couldn't excel in it at anything. Then I got involved in art, and it somehow brought me meaning and purpose. But there was a lot of things that just made me uncomfortable. I'm an extrovert. So like you, I get energy from other people being in a room and, and want to share energy as well. Right. I'm from New York. I often question if there are any introverts amongst <laughs> New Yorkers. It doesn't appear to be. Right. But I met a lot of introverts joining religious community and also going into ministry. Then I also would be petrified, not so much about public speaking or preaching, but I felt like I, because I had experienced some less than good preaching, I wanted mine to be really inspiring and good. And I didn't feel like I had the academic ability and I would write up notes and I was, I would have nightmares that I would forget my notes at the pulpit. Going Mm -hmm. into a hospital room with six people, uh, again, going through the equivalent of a clinical pastoral experience, I learned a lot of things. I was frightened in the beginning, but I got more and more comfortable with it. At this stage, after 38 years of priesthood, plus a year of deacon, Ship and also before that, even doing stuff as a Polish student, I don't get so preoccupied even about preaching or having, there, there were days in the past where I felt the words were not coming to my brain and I'd get angry with God again because right. I made a deal with the Lord saying, okay, I'll do the priesthood thing 
but you got to provide the inspiration if I'm going to be in any way a good preacher. And there were those days on a Saturday afternoon where I'm going, hello, God, nothing's happening. <laughs> so yeah. that was totally out of my comfort zone. But at this stage, I don't know. Maybe it's like riding a bike. So let me ask you, what's it like living with a whole pile of introverts? It can be very challenging. I remember working with a woman once who was a very high introvert. And I could not pick up on her signals. I think one time, it might have been on a good Friday, that I sensed she was angry about something but she wasn't expressing it. And I was wondering if she was angry with me, that something had moved in the church. She was on the staff. And I said, I can't enter into this Holy Week properly without confronting this directly. That's the extrovert. So I found her and I said, I have to ask you a question. I need to clear the air. I'm sensing that you're really upset about something. Is it with me? She said, no. And she then explained what it was about. And I said, I didn't have anything to do with that. I'm so sorry. But introverts, they process information differently, even when they're upset. Extroverts do everything out loud, which drives introverts crazy. So it's just learning. How, again, it's about intuiting who you're dealing with, hopefully getting to know them better. It's about communication, conversation. So that lines of communication can continue to flow rather than shut down. It's a challenge. When I got to know the Paulists, I just assumed that one of the reasons I always liked them is I just assumed these guys are extroverts. They're preaching, they're doing this, they're doing that. And I'm like, all right, these, I can hang with these guys. And then whenever That's... I found out how introverted they were, I was like, because most religious people tend to be introvert more than extrovert. And I learned this even with Paul's colleagues that I was in formation with or living with. Quite often, someone who is an introvert, when they're with people, when they're preaching, they could come off as an extrovert, mm -hmm. warm, connected, mm -hmm. sharing. Right. So it gets complicated. Right. Because I think God creates us complicated. We want to put people in boxes, have everything compartmentalized. But the more we learn about the human race, about ourselves, as the more we develop better, even scientific understanding in the psychological sense, we begin to realize that we are creatures that are so complex and we have to constantly be open to learning new things. You worked on Madison Avenue in advertising in the heart of Mad Men territory. You became a priest. You had ministry. You've confronted this horrible illness. You've been around the country. Are you hopeful? Yes, I've got to be. I think when you lose hope, you really, you sink into clinical depression and a reason for living. I do look at the news, I read the New York Times this morning, which we get here, and even the local paper, the Chicago Tribune, and watch things on news feeds, and it can really drag you down. The war in Ukraine that continues to rage on, 
a particular ideology that cannot be moved from and look at the suffering of humanity. Is it about power? Is it about control? Whatever it is, I feel that weight of evilness and oppression that then begins to affect me. But I can't lose hope. So I constantly pray. I know so many people right now that I pray for because of their situation with cancer, some worse than others. And you beg God that these people would be given the strength or the peace to move through that experience one way or the other. And when people have either colleagues, friends, relatives who die, you pray that people will have their faith to go through to get them along. Because without that, I just don't know how you keep moving on. So I cling to it. At times, many times it's threatened, challenged, but I keep going back to my center. Before we wrap up, Father Joe, is there anything else that you want to talk about or any topics that we should have raised with you that we have forgotten? No, I would just say to anyone who may be listening, if you have questions, if you're searching, that's a good thing. If you think you're really secure in your religious faith, question that too, because there can always be something that will pull the rug from under you, but never give up. And yeah. always, ha- And always have hope. Joe, I want to ask you one last question here. And I know you're a fun guy, but we've been talking about all this deep stuff. What do you do for fun? Currently, it's different. I used to love going to the gym to stay healthy and feel good about how I can move. When I was in Rome, even though we were in the midst of COVID, there were days, this is something I learned from seminary days, that I don't know if I would have ever learned if I hadn't joined the Paul's Father. There are times to put the books down. There are times to shut down work and say, you know what? It's going to happen. I need, it's a beautiful day. I need to go out and take advantage of this. And that's what happened to me in Rome. I got it when the museums would open up or certain churches that I wanted to see. I found my way to use part of a day to do that or get out and walk around the city or to explore the Borghese Gardens, go to St. Peter's Basilica when there were no tourists around. Took advantage of as much as I could, even got up at 4.30 in the morning to be a representative of the Paulists at a a shoot for an an event or a production that never came to light that the Paulist fathers had paid into. It was going to be following Andrea Bocelli uh, as he would be singing in different places on an ancient pilgrimage route. So I went and I met Andrea Bocelli only because the New Yorker in me came up and I said, I'm not, I got up at 4.30 in the morning. I'm going to go over to him and introduce myself. Beautiful. And I did, did a selfie. That was fun. I got to see the Sistine Chapel because I went to a concert there that I was invited to. Our lead cantor was in the Sistine Chapel choir. Oh. You don't get those experiences, even as a tourist. And in New York, I've gone to the theater. I've gone to the opera. Just last night here in Chicago, I went to the Chicago Symphony. Quite often people offer you free tickets or tickets that they can't use. For me in Manhattan, going to the theater, I've tapped into my savings. Uh, The Paulist Fathers, the way we're a religious society, we're able to keep our personal money. Not that I had a lot. 
even after leaving advertising, but making use of the days I have. You never know what the future is. So I'm trying to do those kinds of fun things. Well, that's a gift, finding beauty every moment of your life. That's Yeah, right. really. That's, a, that's living a fun, in the moment, I think, right? I okay. told you, he's a fun guy. So, Thanks right. for being on, Very good, Father, Father Joe. Joe. It's a pleasure. It's been a real pleasure, very hopeful and spiritually uplifting for us. Thank you so right. much. Special thanks to El Jefe Paul Snatchko and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulus Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts and, of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacons, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And, of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.